Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Mark DeMassimo. How are you doing, Mark? Oh, it's so great to be here, Josh. I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be on the show. I've really enjoyed listening to it. I'm flattered, and I'm glad to have you here as well. And marketing being on my mind, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I'm going to read your bio. I'm going to read highlights of your bio, because even just the highlights is still a lot. So you are the creative director in chief of DeMassimo Goldstein. Do I say Daigo? Digo. Digo. Digo for sure. Yeah, with the Italian pronunciation, Digo. <laughs> so it's an inspiration action agency. You founded it in 1996. So I feel like you were ahead of things on your strategy, if I understand it right. Yeah, and- we're all about positive behavior change. That's our, our core. So we try to inspire actions that are inspiring. So yeah, positive behavior change. This is what we're here for. And yes. so, and before that, you were a decade at BBDO, J. Walter Thompson, Chapman Direct Advertising, Deutsche and Kirschbund, and Bond. Yes. You're the author of Digital at Speed, co-founder of Tappening, which we just talked about before going on, and Offlining Movements. You served as a chair and creative develop- of the Creative Development Board of the Partnership to End Addiction. Another thing readers of my podcast know I want to talk to you about. Mm. Uh, sorry, readers of my blog know I want to talk to you about. Uh, board member, Future 50 CEO by Smart CEO Magazine in 2014, 2015, 2016. Best-selling book, Leadership Secrets of the World's Most Successful CEOs. Co-author of Inside the Minds, Innovation and Branding as an Advertising Strategy. This is a lot. You're a uh, familiar face on CNBC, CNN, Bloomberg, Fox News, Fox 5 NY, often quoted in the media. You teach at SVA, a school of visual arts. And actually, I'm going to start off I should start off with asking more of your backgrounds. Yeah, I'll ask more of your background, but I really want to talk about something that you, when we were messaging before this, you talked about working with, you're in the, in the rooms with the CVS, moving from CVS drugs to CVS health and yeah. choosing not CVS to- CVS Caremark. It was CVS oh. Caremark to CVS health. And to choose not to sell something that was making a lot of money against- my understanding, and I hope to learn more of them among many other things, that they chose not to sell. I think the number one profit and profitable line. Correct. And probably everyone was saying, "Don't do it," and it was the right choice, and it became very quickly known. Anybody who hasn't listened to your 500th episode at least once really should. So I want to put a plug in there for that. But you talk about. Buddha-like sacrifices. You talk about the importance of sacrifices as a kind of of leadership of yourself and and of other people. And, you know, what happened at CVS, and it was called CVS Caremark because it was really the, the, it had been formed by the merger of two companies. One, the drugstores that we all know, where lots of cigarettes were sold and accounting for about a billion dollars of profit each year. So we're talking about a lot of money, But, but they were merged at some point with an organization that that provided prescription insurance and prescription fulfillment services for corporate clients. And so they were, so they had this, it was sort of this uh, merger and it, it kind of happened in stages. They first said, well, what are we going to be about in the world? What are we going to be about? This company that we where we run drug stores, but they don't just sell drugs. They don't just sell prescriptions. They don't just sell health products. They do sell other things, including some unhealthy products. And then we're helping organizations to keep their employees healthy. 
And to do that in a way that's sustainable and efficient, but also just to maximize its health, because what's more important to the health of an organization than the health of its constituent humans? So it started with that. And they realized that there was an opportunity for a a uniquely shaped organization like that to be all about health. So they came to this happy decision, we can be all about health. And then they thought about, well, what would have to change if we're all about health? And someone said, I wish it was me. (laughs) If it was, believe me, I've been taking credit for it. But some honest person, some thoughtful person said, and my client, Leslie Doty, because they were our that we were their agency, strategy and creative at the time. And our client, Leslie Doty, who had been the first client who ever hired our agency, Digo, was at the table. And somebody said, what about the c- cigarettes? You know, what if these, we know these products aren't healthy. We know these products are bad for health. How can we, how can we be about health and sell these products? And of course, they had all, they had consultants and members of the board and folks who were, were saying, oh, you can't walk away from a billion dollars a year of profit, most profitable part of the business, the part of the business that actually makes a drugstore profitable. Even we, we have lots of stores. Some of them won't be profitable anymore if we don't sell cigarettes, for example. Some their profits are based on cigarettes. What are we going to do? And by the way, as soon as you do that, a lot of people are going to go over to our competitors. Walgreens or what have you to buy their cigarettes, and then they're going to get their prescription businesses. And even if they follow us, we're not going to get any advantage because then we'll just all be equal anyway. But what it came down to is how could we not? How can we be all about health? Well, we don't, let's not change the name to CBS Health. Then people won't hold us to that highest standard. So you're saying we're going to be all about health. But we're going to hide it because <laughs> we, because we, don't. and ultimately the leaders and this really decisions like this don't get made without the support of the CEO and all of that. So I give the leadership team and the leaders credit for this. They said, how can we not? How can we be all about health and not do this? And even if we take a step back and, and we don't recover that revenue for years, we will be better as an organization with integrity that's all about health than we will be as an organization without integrity. And they made that decision. And the rest is history, as you know. And which I understand that they restored the lost profitability within 12 months. That's correct. That's correct. Public company, again, took some quarters, took some hits, some quarters, lots of critics, unhappy shareholders, But to give credit where credit was due, also a lot of people, there are sustainable investors out there. There are ethical investors out there. There are investors who support, who saw the integrity in in their move and supported them. But it was controversial. They had some bad quarters and then better quarters. And they haven't looked back. They left a lot of problems behind and a lot of potential liability, too. From one perspective, this is, I think a lot of people look at branding in sustainability and they say, oh, there's so much greenwashing going on and there's bright green lies and things like that. But this shows that brand and identity, if you want to be true to yourself, if you actually want, if you hold yourself to integrity, you, it forces you to live 
with integrity or operate your organization with integrity. There's not a lot of that going on. There's, maybe there's a lot of that going on, but there's, there could be more. There could be a lot more. There could there's, be more. There's a lot of, and then on the individual basis, there's a lot of people, virtually everyone, it seems, who's like, yeah, of course the environment is important, but, and then come the excuses. And walking away from a billion dollars, a billion dollar profit, or is it a billion dollar revenues? I believe it was a billion dollars in profit. Wow. I believe it was, I believe it was more, there was a, there were, I, I don't know what the revenue figures were, but it was, yeah, a lot of profit. And all over the place is said, if we don't do it, someone else will. And this is one of the big things, like there's a lot of litter in New York city right now. There always has been, but since the pandemic, it's yet more. And I would like to see a lot less packaging. I haven't thrown out my garbage in almost two and a half years because I avoid packaged food and I don't buy a lot of stuff and it saves me money. It is ac- it's accessible to anyone to buy less stuff. And yeah. one of the big examples I have of, I have a few examples of, of cases where people said, if we don't, someone else will. And that's not what happens historically. CVS is being one of the big cases, which is why I was so interested in it. New York City, or I think it was the state banning Cigarettes from the workplace, including bars and restaurants, was another big case. Yes. Where they said if they'll just go to Hoboken because they can take the path train across and they'll get cigarettes there. Or they'll smoke because they want to drink and they want to smoke. We had had great leadership from Mayor Bloomberg on that, who his his values were in the right place and he had the power to do it. And there was a lot. Oh, my God. There was a lot of hand wringing and pushback. It's harder. It's harder for committees to to take bold and risky actions than it is for for founder leaders. And yet in the case of CBS in New York City, you, you had Democratic in a sense, or you had gut groups of people in governance who actually made really bold decisions. And it's pretty impressive. They had strong leadership, but it wasn't just one person's decision. It's pretty rare. And the big sign of success there was that New Jersey had to ban cigarettes because people were coming into Manhattan, the exact opposite. People didn't know clean. And so I want to see, what do I want to see not allowed? When I walk around in my neighborhood in Greenwich Village on Saturday and Sunday mornings, the amount of litter from the bars and and just all the wrappers and the takeout and, oh man, I saw what must be the fourth sign of the apocalypse a little while ago, which was delivered to McDonald's. I'm like, how, if you're going to get delivery, how do you get that? Del- it's a store whose whole premise is very fast turnaround. Yeah. They going to the store was too much for them. Going to the McDonald's was too much. And it, so they got it delivered. And if all the things they could get delivered that, and it, all this stuff ends up on the street. And I think a lot of people, if we were to say no, we already have no plastic bags, although there's all sorts of loopholes in that. And we already did no styrofoam and everyone said, oh, that's going to kill everything. And it didn't kill anything at all. And right. I'd like to see no, you know, no bags of Doritos and no sodas. And, and, but, and I want to point out through democratic processes, the goal of this podcast is to change culture so that we're not legislating against what people want. But I think people want less addictive stuff thrust in their lives. And I think that people would say, 
all these stores get their business off of selling these things and they're all going to go out of business. And I think no one, I don't think people like to visit places that are covered in garbage and we're covered in garbage and all these stores. Actually, here's what I really want to do. I haven't proposed this to anyone formally yet. I did a blog post on it. Hmm. When I, I pick up litter every day. So when I pick up litter, I can tell oftentimes where it comes from. Like for example, like Dunkin' Donuts, Starbucks, McDonald's, Gatorade, Coca-Cola, uh, a bunch of the beer ones on the weekends. These are the main contributors of where the stuff comes from. And I want to pick up all the Dunkin' Donuts stuff and throw it in a Dunkin' Donuts store. Yes. What I notice is that stores used to have trash cans, but now they've taken them all away because I think there's so much trash that they can't deal with it, which is exacerbating the problem. Like the problem was so big that they're running away from it. So I think to have all the stores required to have trash cans in proportion to the amount of stuff that they sell that requires trash cans and they have to be available to the public. Yeah. Look, I think you're, I mean, if I were to just to take a step all the way back to positive behavior change and what creates behavior change, because I know you're, you teach this and I teach this and I consider myself a student. I'm a lifelong student of this. I'm probably going to die with a book or a research report in my hand, trying to learn just that little bit more about it. And I'm almost a little afraid of the word expert because I just feel like as soon as you think that then you stop learning as fast. So, and I got a lot of humility around sustainability too, because I'm obsessed about the things I do. I'm full on creative, full on trying to help people make changes systematically and I don't know, I always have, you know, the time to research in my own life, all the things that I could do. I want to make it so, I, I think when you, we ultimately, it's people like you that drive change uphill. And you might feel like Sisyphus, you might feel like it keeps rolling back down on you. But I think at some point, it gets easier to do the change for most people than it is to not do it. I look at examples like most people, most people didn't pay their income tax in this country until they started payroll deductions. In the beginning, it was pay your tax at the end of the year, and most people just didn't. And then they started just taking out of the paycheck before you saw it. And it didn't hurt as much because you never had it. Really, so you didn't. Now, do I, I'm not saying I love that. No, but what I'm saying is that society decided it was necessary. It had a majority behind it, and then they made it harder not to do than to do. And that's the same. So laws and regulations really do matter. And I do think that. And so for me, ease is one of the most important words, maybe the most important word. But ease is a complicated word because there's psychological ease and then there's physical ease. So it became hard to throw trash out of your windows in Texas after they ran the highly successful Don't Mess with Texas campaign. Suddenly it became socially unacceptable to be a litterer where it was actually socially normative to be a litterer in Texas before that. They made it hard. They made it psychologically hard to be a litterer. So people kept their litter in their car. And they said, I just actually saw in a movie, and I'm not endorsing this language, but I just saw it in a movie last night that a father's telling a father in Texas telling his son circa 1969. It's Jack Black's new thing. 
I'm not going to use these words, but he was saying the difference between one kind of white person who throws their trash out their window and another kind who keeps their trash in their car is whether they then clean it out after they get home. So it's all this whole, it was a window into the way they were thinking back in 1969. And the truth was that they didn't have an intrinsic motivation to protect the environment. They didn't want to look like jerks. <laughs> so society decided that you were not a real Texan if you, st- if you kept on throwing trash out of your car window, that you just weren't okay. And that's what it took for some people. So I do think not everybody is going to get up to the top of Maslow's hierarchy in time to make changes for all the right reasons. And I do think that we need all the reasons we can get. Well, my strategy with this podcast is to work with influential people, which actually the Domestic Texas campaign did. I think of like Steve Ray Vaughan and yes. the other big one. Yes. Now it's Matthew McConaughey, but that was much later. Yes. And the influential people influence. And I don't just mean like the YouTube influencers, but... Nobel Prize winners and and Super Bowl winners and heads of CEOs. And right now, there's none of them who are acting sustainably, even trying. And I think that when that happens, which I hope this podcast will help happen, then people start seeing, they'll have role models. There there just aren't any role models right now. Of Josh, help me and and them out. And I hope you'll forgive me for, for not knowing this, but Make it easy for me. What's the minimum that an influential person needs to do in order to show up as living sustainably? What would, where, at least where, where should we start? I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to start not with little versus big. And I know you said they didn't have an intrinsic motivation when you get to the masses or you get to a large campaign, but it may not be the same one. (laughs) What's that? It may not be the same intrinsic motivation. It might not be the same. That's all my point is, yeah. But go on, okay. I'm sorry. To me, the big point is intrinsic versus extrinsic. Because if you're just mm. doing what people tell you to do, if everyone says, don't use straws, and you, you don't use straws, maybe you've complied, but that's not particularly inspirational. And besides, everyone's had the experience where they try to avoid straws and someone brings out the straws and then they take it back and they're like, oh, I'm just going to throw it out. You might as well use it. And you're like, ah, oh, I didn't change anything. I just embarrassed myself. You're See, right. I proved that what I do doesn't matter. That's what happens when it's extrinsic. Yes, you're right. And there's backlash. These, when, it's, when people follow fads, then they get bored with them. And then there's a backlash. Yeah. And I've, in this podcast, I've been calling the technique that I use the Spodic method. But my, in my book, I'm changing it to the AIM method for AIM, authentic intrinsic motivation. Mm. You know mm. what? I'm going to do it with you. Okay. Let, let's start now. Okay. And I was going to start asking you for your background and how 1996 is like almost 30 years ago that you started something that I, but we'll get to that later if we get to it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, uh, look, I, I think this might serve your audience better. And I'm happy to, if you'll take your name off your method, I'll take my bio out of the show. <laughs> well, they can read it in the notes also. Yeah. <laughs> when you act on the environment, first, actually, let me go back a step. Is the environment something that you care about that you act on? First off, yeah, it is. For me, it just goes back to being a kid where, you know, being in the man-made human environment was extremely anxiety provoking and escaping into the woods was, was my haven. To me, the natural world was an escape. And it was also just, it was just a calming place where I felt like, 
literally there were times as a kid where I thought, if ever I feel like I'm dying, I'm just going to go into the woods because I think I could die in the woods. I don't think I could die in a room. I felt that as a kid. So there's just some, there's a connection there, which just, this is where I belong. So for me, that's the beginning. I want to address things systematically. You know what I mean? I tend to, I don't, I'm in an industry. I feel like I'm in a world and in a society where people celebrate the external appearances. And I'm certainly in an industry where people focus on the external appearances over the substance and where popularity is more important than greatness or just doing the right thing. And I'm a person who believes that appearances are important and that popularity is important. I'm a a communications person. So I believe, I don't believe that the surface is unimportant, but I believe that you have to have your values in the right order. I would rather make a difference and appear not to than appear to make a difference and not. (laughs) So that's where my head's at. Take me to the woods. Are you, you from New York? I'm originally from New Jersey. And I moved to central New York, north of Syracuse for for high school, and then lived in upstate New York and ended up in Westchester here, north of New York City. Can you tell me about the woods? Was it, are these like fir trees or are they year round? Are there, is it a a park? Is it a mountain? My father was a, we grew up, I grew up in Edison, New Jersey. Uh, And my father was an electrical engineer and an inventor of speed dial, by the way. We skipped that part in your bio. So yeah, yeah. We call people over and over again. Um, And he was a real, it was interesting because while he was inventing technology, he was really disturbed by the tendency of people to let technology rule their lives. And he he used to say, we invent these machines to serve us, not to be our masters. And he would try to train us by not letting us answer the phone if it rang during, during dinner, for example. And we had the last black and white TV because he said it would be a waste of money and resources because they weren't going to be good ones for 10 years. So, so I grew up in this household where we believed in technology. We believed technology could solve problems, but not if we didn't stay in charge and not if we were not careful about the decisions we made. We spent weekends in state parks and we spent vacations in national parks. And But honestly, I spent a lot of my time in just in just like normal New Jersey woods within walking distance from my house, right next to the little lake that was the runoff of the God knows what chemical plant, probably super fun site in Middlesex County, New Jersey. I think of the sand that got lodged in my eye and what that sand went through and in that most polluted of counties in the country And I wonder whether the radiation is killing cancers or whether it's going to cause one. I've been, I'm great and I'm nearly 60, but I was in the woods, but I was on the edge of the end of the woods too. So I really, and I felt it. The lake, the Mirror Lake Beach Club that I went to was finally shut down because of concern about the runoff from the Ken Buck uh, Superfund site that was nearby. We didn't know about it when we were there, but some of us had the good sense to swim in the pool and not in the lake. And there are definitely cancer clusters there as well, too. So I love the woods, but I spent my childhood in woods that were in danger and that were perhaps a bit dangerous. I hear a pretty complex mix of emotions and and experiences because there's the calm, belonging, family, naturalness. Not At the same time, there's a latent foreboding 
disaster coming, but also respect for technology used to better one's life. But there's the risk of it doing the opposite. And based on this mix of feelings, especially the calm and what you felt in the woods, I invite you, this is at your option, to think of something to do in your life today for as long as you want or as short as you, as you want to act on those feelings, to manifest them in some way with three constraints if you go for it. Something you're not already doing, something that you do with your own hands. So not, oh, I'll get my company to do this or I'll get my kids to do that, that you do with your own hands. And though you don't have to measure it, it has some physical component that is non-zero that you would say that left the world a better place in some way. And if you're up for going for it, then almost no one right off the bat has something in mind. And it usually takes a bit of back and forth. If you have something great, if not, then I would propose that we go back and forth a few times until something emerges. Are you game? Oh, I'm game. I, I love it. I, I think I feel like I'm seeing the method here. and I applaud your skill in... And interpreting, because I think he's nailed this mix of feelings that I have. I think there's some anger, too. I have some trouble. I just think we can't forever tolerate a situation where, where organizations can externalize costs into the environment and into society. Whether that's the fast food chain where that isn't dealing with its own garbage, really. That's a small case. Or industry that where that is making profits in a sense because they're not paying for the full cost of their burden on society. I just think we can't long tolerate that. So there's some anger there too. But I want to take you up on this. Yes, I will do this. I have some constraints today. I am going to, after this, I'm going to get ready and get on a train to New York City with my wife to have dinner with some friends who are in from out of town. And so my 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 room for taking action today it either has to happen along the way or along the way back or when I get back or I'm going to have trouble getting it done today. It doesn't have to be today. And if, okay. you, if you're up for it, then I would propose that we have a second conversation after it happens, which could be oh, great. in weeks or months or years. But uh, to come up with something that you do, yeah, it doesn't have to be today, not like immediately. I mean, it can be. But I love this because what you're, what you're doing is like, so you've connected with me with a well of emotion. So intrinsic motivation. And now you're basically saying, while you're in this state, act on it and plan to act on it and act on it and, act, and, and do it with your own hands. So in a sense, what you're doing is it's what your method seems to be like reverse engineering. It's alienation in a sense you're, you're reconnecting me to the emotion and now you're connecting the emotion to my own actions. And I, as a behavior change uh, person, I feel like the result of that will be that I'm going to find those actions meaningful and I'm going to want to re I'm going to want to have more of that experience. So I think that's the beginning of a habit. Yeah, you, you nailed it. And that's Eisenhower said, leadership is the art of getting the other guy to do your thing for his reason. Yeah, and yeah. what I've learned in the course of this podcast is that everyone has a connection to nature 
And the verb I often use is unearth or to dust off, less than mm. reconnecting. I think mostly these things are suppressed. Before living memory, you could not live. No human ever lived more than a short walk from a forest or the beach or a river. And now, you know, exercise to the listener where you are right now. Is there how much living, is there anything living within view? And a lot of people who are listening to this can look around in their house or, and there might be nothing living within sight. Yeah. I was walking through the, through a neighborhood in the city yesterday and thinking about how the people were living and there was so little, even, even at the street view, much less there were windows, so little that was living. I've been an entrepreneur a long time. I have a certain amount of privilege and I've used it to live in the woods and within commuting distance of New York city so that I could have, so I can remain sane and creative because I need that connection to nature. But I was looking and thinking, how can they do it? And what can we do about that? And if once you've gone long enough without it, you don't know what you're missing. And people are quick to say mind, body, maybe mind, body, spirit, they, they recognize if you go full on by body and no mind or full on mind and no body, and you don't have both, something's off. And I put to you that nature, no one ever had to think about it for 300,000 years as human beings, that nature was an important, a critical element of that, that if you take it away, people go crazy. But we've done that and people don't know that they're missing it. And so it doesn't take much to restore people. Actually, I've talked to some young people who I have really have no experience with nature, which is difficult to say the least. But most of the people I talk to have had some experience with nature that is deeply rewarding. And I don't have to dig deep to get that out. They're happy to share it. So let's get down to business and, and see if- Yes, come up with let's do it. Because it'll be in the doing that- all of what you talked about, theoretically, you got it. And I think you anticipate what's to come and how it'll go. And it, I can tell you that however positive an experience you expect to have, when you do it, it will be more positive than you expected. Has Excellent. anything come to mind of things you could do? The first thing that came to, I mean, one thing that I do, so you said so do something that I don't do. One thing that I do is I, I have three sons and I've always taken them into the woods for just to walk. And I think as a result, even though they, they're highly technologically connected at all times and all of that, as a result, they've been able to maintain calm. So I was thinking, you know, what we do have a couple of sanctuaries here too. And I was thinking maybe I could take it a step further and go down and clean up, basically help with the cleanups. I think I, I know how to, I know how to volunteer and I just, I haven't done it. My uncle's like in, well into his seventies and retired every Sunday. He said, I just wanted something to do. He cleans up a beach with two other guys who just clean up a beach when they just adopted a beach down in Florida. And I just, I've always felt like, wow, what a wonderful way to deal with the problems he was facing, which was just I need something to do, something that connects me to nature, something I feel good about, and something that connects me to other people. And it's just every Sunday, there he is. They're just picking things up. So I'm looking for something like that. That's what I'm thinking. All right, let's specify. 
And for how long? Is it something you do daily, weekly, monthly, or you said he did it Sundays? What would work for you? And what specifically would you do? Is it taking your boys for a walk and picking stuff up while you do it? Yeah, I would take so two of two of my sons are in college, but I have a 15 year old who's here and our walks when we're connected to nature, that's when we're also the most connected when he's most willing to open up. Not every time, but those were the moments when he said the things that needed to be said too. So it's an important part of, of our lives. I feel this, I moved to this town because of the Edith G. Reed Sanctuary. Edith G. Reed, you know, was a woman who owned a piece of property and designated a sanctuary. And I moved to this town because it's there. So I feel like I owe that place a debt. So I, and we go there walking. I think what I will do is I will reach out to the people who are running it and see what the volunteer opportunities are. And I want to find something I can do with my son. And, and I want it to be something we can do with our hands once a week, go and pick up stuff. Simple so that it's not hard to commit to and follow through on. Okay. It sounds like you might even be able to do that without asking. Well, yeah, we can. I think they have things out. So I think at the least we can do that. But I think it would be good to know what they need, at least as an input. But yeah, I think I can start doing it before I ask them. So there's no complication. I can just go down there and bring a bag and take the stuff where it's supposed to go. When, if we had a second conversation, how long would it take before, if I ask you, so that if I ask you, what was your experience like that you have a meaningful answer? I'm long on answers. So it could be a week, but I'll say a month because that gives me time to, you know, I can tell you what the first experience is, but I can tell you how I'm changed, I I would think, in a month. Yeah, then I propose after we stop recording, before we hang up, we'll get out the calendars and schedule a second conversation, if that's cool. I would love to. And so, yeah, I, I look, I, this is, I find this incredibly valuable because I, one, I'm excited for this adventure. And I, I do feel that this, the connection to nature, it's just as part of my secret for staying young and staying connected to reality as my career gets along in the tooth and all that. But also I feel like, I feel what you're teaching is about leadership too. Even if I might be leading for sustainability, but I'm leading for creativity or I'm leading for courage in decision-making And I feel like your method is great leadership for those areas as well. Yeah, it it took me a while working on it before I realized that the technique I was using was actually what I'd written about in my book. (laughs) I looked at the environment as somehow different. Like, oh, I got to develop special techniques there. And then eventually I realized, oh, what works? And it's really, it's... Leadership to me is much more about emotions and role models and working on the system rather than in the system. And a big part of it is helping my definition, my working definition for leadership is helping people do what they wanted to do, but haven't figured out how. Yeah. And one of the big things motivating me and that kills me about most of the efforts of what other people believe that they're doing to lead on leadership, which is at best management managing is they're focused on extrinsic. They're cajoling, coercing, convincing, all of which lead people to push back and no one's enjoying it. And the joy, you're going to enjoy picking up litter. I guarantee it. Like I'll bet you, I won't bet you because I don't feel like just taking your money. (laughs) You're going to enjoy it and you're going to do more than you expect it to. 
Also, you'd have to give you'd have to give me really long odds because I tend to agree that I will. <laughs> I've gone to the point since I pick up litter every day that I'm out of I'm. This is how one of the ways I'm out of touch with the world is I can't understand why everyone isn't picking up litter all the time. Because I know people think, oh, I pay my taxes. Someone else is supposed to pick it up, which actually we don't pick it up, so we have to pay taxes on for people to pick it up. The cause and effect is the other way. Yeah. And they say, maybe it's dirty. I don't know if someone else should do it. Or, But that's making, it's as if outdoors is somehow not where you live. Right. I, how could you, how can we, I'm not saying pick up everything because right now there's too much, but something. How can you pass it? How many pieces can you pass by before, if you deaden yourself to seeing it, the key thing there is you're deadening yourself. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think it is because you are, t- so you're helping, you're able to help people tap into their intrinsic motivations because you are connected to your own intrinsic motivations. And because you're connected to your own intrinsic motivations, that doing something, even though you're not solving the whole problem, that picking up litter makes you feel good intrinsically. You know that even if you can't make the world a kind place for everyone, doing a kindness, even if no one sees you do it, makes you feel good. Yeah. And I do think a lot, of, I think a lot of folks have not been led this way. And, and instead, what, what they're thinking, and I think this is why this is, while it's not uniquely, well, the gift that you're bringing is not just for conservation, not just for, oh, and I remember I was on the board of rare conservation too. So we can talk about that, but it's not just for conservation. It's not just for sustainability. This is a category of ethics and behavior and expectations about around which many people feel overwhelmed and confused. And that in a sense, there's no matter what I do, I will be, it won't be enough. It will be onerous and I will be judged for the things that I don't do. And so they're viewing things through this extrinsic can't win lens rather than through an intrinsic, be part of the solution, do a thing, start. You have no idea where it leads or who else you might lead or inspire. inspire. No one's leading them that way, but you are. Yeah. And, and a secret, not a secret, but something that no one gets until they do it. You're going to like it. You're going to wish you'd started earlier. Everything that has you believe that it's burdensome or sacrifice. Like I, I didn't push back on when you said sacrificed earlier because you said Buddhist sacrificed. In, in, in that context, it's, it's not a sacrifice in giving something else up. It's a sacrifice in terms of service or something like that. Yes. And this, people believe that it's a burden. There's a lot of people who think if we're not constantly raising the GDP, we're going to revert to the Stone Age and mothers are going to die on childbirth and everything is going to... And that's not the case at all. It's Yeah, we need better measures. I see this all the time too, that whatever their intrinsic values, there's a distortion that metrics bring. Because, and then one thing about dollars and conventional success is that it's very easy to see and measure extrinsically. It's easy to, and someone very wise said to me yesterday, people who feel they haven't had conventional success first want conventional success. Then they want success on their own terms. 
<laughs> so that's uh, it's an interesting thing that we have to deal with, but I deal with it as a leader all the time. How do you, and I think about measurement all the time as well. So that's the part of you that wants to deal with these things on a systemic level. What are the systems around people that might tend to distort their behavior? And GDP is certainly a measure that distorts behavior. It just does. Systemic change begins with personal change. And it's virtually impossible to lead people to adopt values that your own behavior is inconsistent with. And that's what we have in the world today. And you worked for a partnership for, to end addiction. Yeah, and still do. Still, still work with them, yeah. I would love to connect with them because we are addicted to behaviors enabled by pollution. And now most addictions, if someone starts smoking cigarettes or doing meth, they know that there's a risk of getting addicted. And they think, I'll stop before I get addicted. I'll just take a little meth. And then they get addicted. Adverse, they choose short-term stimulus, rewarding stimulus for despite adverse conditions. They know the adverse conditions are coming, but they take that risk. Flying is slightly different because... I grew up in a world where flying was good, basically an unalloyed good. It had no known adverse conditions. And the adverse conditions snuck up on us because the world changed. So it became an addiction, not because we took a risk and overjudged our ability to stop, but because it, adverse conditions arrived that we didn't expect. There is one other case, Oxycontin was like that. I think a lot of doctors believed what the Sacklers were telling them, that it's not addictive. Yes. And it turned out yeah. it was. Well, they, Which they was actually named, the case with heroin. And- they named heroin because it, it was this wonderful opioid that wasn't addictive. That's what they, yeah. <laughs> so, we, see, they, we see it happen again and again. It's so good and it goes right to your brain and yet it's not addictive. <laughs> that's the addiction speaking. And that's what we tell ourselves with all the, you're going, you're running through what people, why people don't act. And they are, I, I, put to you that it's an addiction. This is, this is what my book is about. And I'm on Facebook, but I also, you know, put Facebook in that camp as well too, of it certainly can become an unhealthy addiction. Look, I think there are a whole class of substances that I had a drink last night and I probably won't have another drink for two weeks because that's the way I am is drinking the way I drink probably isn't likely to be addictive. And I think if all you do on Facebook is have birthdays once a year, you're probably unlikely to experience the OCD, addictive, compulsive things that come out of it. But, but they're trying real hard to make sure that, that they're competing with your sleep and with your sanity. They're trying very hard. That's where so much of the intelligence there is going and getting as much of your time on there and getting you as worked up as possible. And then getting as much from the advertisers. And now that they're listing who their advertisers are in an attempt to show that they're being more transparent, you can see who it is who wants a piece of your brain. It's, it's interesting. So anyway, we're, getting, we're moving off a little bit too. I would love, I think you should talk to Dr. Fred Munch, PhD, who at the Partnership to End Addiction. I can't wait to hear a conversation between you two and I'll hook you two up. I don't know if you've ever spoken to Brett Jenks, who's the CEO of RARE. RARE is a truly rare conservation organization. 
that that works around the world along in the tropics, basically all over the place where, and they work in the U.S. too, but this is where really where they started, where conservation meets issues meet poverty. And they help local conservation leaders engage. I mean, I can't wait for you to see some of these stories. I don't know if you, if you read the book by my friend Dan Heath, Dan, the Heath brothers. Dan and I were on this board together. And it's a chapter in the book, Switch, How to Change Things When Change is Hard, all about Paul, who was the original conservationist who, who developed the first, how to get people to care about conservation. And he was, I forget the island, but he was this young English conservationist on an island and he found a bird and he made this one, you know, bird that only appeared, he called it a pride campaign, this bird that only lived on this island. And with his tiny little budgets, he got local people who cared to dress as this bird and to make a campaign about this bird and ultimately, the law got changed that it became illegal to kill this bird. And through love for this local bird and pride in this local bird, they started to protect their forests. And they started to stand up to corporations and stand up to schemes that were basically put profit before sustainability on that island. So that was the beginning of Rare. I'd love for you to talk to any of those folks, and I'll, I'll hook you up for sure. Great. The and. When I see people working in areas that are threatened, I think of, I support and I'm glad that people organize and resist the corporate, or the moves to the unsustainable things that are happening. What I'm doing, I don't know other people doing this. I believe that within the corporations are humans with hearts and souls with just as much connection to the environment, they have the, what you felt they feel. It was different woods. Maybe it was a beach. Maybe it was a mountain. And I, I believe that they have it in them intrinsically and will love doing it to stop themselves. If we want to protect some area, we have to stop going there and digging stuff out of it. And it's the boardroom. It's the voting booth. So I propose that in a month from now, you're going to have a deeper uh, experience of what right now you're just looking forward to. Yeah. And what I want to do, what I hope to enlist you in or to engage and, and to connect with you on is to, you'll have this technique. You'll know how it works. You'll feel how it works. And how do we get the most famous influential people to enjoy this as well. So that others say, instead of saying, I'll tell, fine, I'll do what you tell me to, to a bunch of scientists who aren't particularly effective at communicating, uh, at leading, which is not to say they're not doing great work. It's just, I have a PhD in physics and I didn't learn how to influence people. I didn't learn how to lead. I didn't learn how to create meaning. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to liberate the scientists to do the science. So they don't have to worry about how do I communicate this effectively? I want to create leaders and, and for people who already are leaders to enable them to lead in this area and create a legacy for themselves. You, you listen to episode 500, so you know this. Yes, yes. And how do we, you're good at messaging, creating identities that people respond to, making things spread and 
reaching people masses as well as targeting people, I would guess. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's the thing. Well, look, I'm good also. I think you have the core. You've got the basic atom of it. And it, it is about awakening that the that personal leadership, right? Those intrinsic motivations. And I'm good at understanding when appreciating an innovation such as the one you brought forward and then thinking of creating creative ways to scale it. Like I'm thinking, wow, imagine these high-end leaders and celebrities who go to the woods in order to be made more successful. (laughs) Imagine them having this experience that you just gave me here today of reconnecting and making commitments because one of the most powerful things they can do is fully realize that they're living not just in their houses and planes, but in the world, <laughs> in this world and doing something about it. I just well, I think there are ways see, to scale this. I can't yet take them to the woods because you were in the woods, but maybe for someone else, it's the beach. So I have to, I envision doing this first. Then if we do that, what I'm thinking. I could have told you an ocean story. Because <laughs> I think the truth is, I think once nature has you, there are mountains and there are streams and there's the beach. And I probably, you know. Well, what I see happening is what you and I just experienced. It's me and Oprah. And we're doing a primetime special. And at the end of it, she turns to the camera. Maybe I do, or maybe we both do. And, and she says, I don't know what it'll be for her. I have no idea. Maybe it'll be the woods. Maybe it'll be picking apples with her grandmother to make pie. I don't know. But it'll be something. It'll be meaningful. And she'll turn to the camera and she'll say, don't copy what I did. Do the method. Sit down with your husband, with your wife, with your neighbors, with someone supportive, non-judgmental, and do the technique that Josh did with me back and forth with each other so that you find your intrinsic motivation, your authentic intrinsic motivation, and act on that it may be what I did. It may not be what I did. And then it'll be LeBron and Serena and Leonardo and all the first name people, Madonna and Bruce and so forth, that will all do it for their own personal reasons. They'll do it. But it'll help create a legacy. It'll help change culture. And they won't feel like they have to give stuff up. They'll feel like, oh, this is what I've been meaning to do. And then they'll start lining up around the corner to all the celebrities and uh, athletes and singers and CEOs. In addition to the action that I committed to doing, I will also try to practice this method on others. And I'll report on that as well. That's ahead of things. Because I've had other guests that I've taught them the technique. And actually, I'll have to, after we hang up, or after we should stop recording before we, I, I got to talk to you about the next stages of what I'm doing. The book is the big thing, but to support the book and tours and things like that. If those are things that you know about. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is funny, like how meta this is of doing it as part of a podcast episode, but it's life. Oh, yes. Yeah. You're creating a movement. I believe so. Yes. And I think it's a movement that people, what's making me do it is one, my sledding hill, my interests for a cleaner world, 
and also the knowing that I believe that this is what everyone wants. No one wants to twist themselves up inside telling themselves what they do doesn't matter. Would you ever tell your sons, it's okay, what you do doesn't matter? <laughs> and yet we tell it to ourselves every time we pass by a piece of litter. Yeah. Who can, yeah. How can we live that way? And, and we actually believe it now. I don't think anyone actually believes it. I think we, we know that what we do matters. And I want to help people do what they want to do, but haven't figured out how. Yeah, I think that it takes a certain level of wisdom and development for folks to say, let's say you believe, let's say you believe in never killing a living thing. And there are people who believe in, in never killing a living thing, not an ant, not anything. Well, if you believe that, you're going to fail. You actually, you, you can't walk on this earth with, without sometimes killing a living thing. I think it's very hard for people to, to walk through this world and say, I won't be perfect, and yet what I do matters. And yet that's what it takes to be an adult, I think, and a leader. I won't be perfect, but there are things I can do, and it still matters. But even if my score isn't 100, <laughs> it still matters. Yeah, this is why intrinsic as opposed to small is so important. And if you try to measure and you say, oh, well, Mark is going to go pick up some litter. What difference does that make? That's not the point. If his heart is in it, it'll grow and it'll become big and it'll spread. And big things that spread add up. Small things that don't spread, I don't care. Do it fine if you want to comply. But I have, I have no opinion on that. If people want to do it, that's the thing. But I want people doing things that they care about, that they want to share it with others, that they enjoy sharing. Seth Godin's all about the ideas that spread. Those are the ones that, that, that spread. So yeah, we're at about an hour. So I propose we wrap up and we can pick up where we are now a month from now. I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you. This is a privilege. I feel really well led and I can't wait to see what the results are and, and to have our next conversation. I look forward to it. And yeah, there's so much I can't wait to hear because what you're doing are things that I've, uh, I've talked to a lot of people who have, and I have, and I look forward to it. So Mark, I will talk to you in a month. Josh, thank you so much. It was great to be on. Take care. We'll talk to you in a month. Bye. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.